Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Ellie Rosenfeld, who is the CEO of Joseph Jacobs Advertising, uh, which is the agency that partners with Maxwell House to uh, target the, the Jewish community, and especially they are famous for the Maxwell House Haggadah, which is what we will be discussing. And disclaimer, Ellie is also my uncle, my uncle as well. So thank you, Ellie, for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Nachi, for having me. Okay, so let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. So I'll start with myself a bit um, and our agency. Um, I've been with Joseph Jacobs since 1996. Um, I got there working on accounts, doing what uh, advertising agencies do. And in 2003, I bought the firm from the founder's son, a gentleman named Dick Jacobs. Um, our firm was founded in 1919 by a guy named Joe Jacobs, oddly enough. Joseph Jacobs Advertising would, uh, would say that. Um, Joe created this agency so that brands and products and services were able to target the then extremely large and gr- but still growing Jewish community on the Lower East Side of New York. And he ran advertising in primarily then Yiddish newspapers in the Lower East Side, Yiddish daily papers, The Forward, Der Woch, Der Blatt, Der Yid, The Morning Journal, um, all of the Yiddish dailies that really served the, the growing Jewish community on the Lower East Side, he would place ads in them. He turned it from just placing ads to an agency by assisting people in getting the ads translated into Yiddish. Uh, when it was a food product, he would actually, when appropriate, um, connect them with a Rav to get them a Hashkacha, products that needed or didn't need a Hashkacha. And that sort of segues into, into Maxwell House. Um, Maxwell House um, was coffee, didn't particularly need a Hashkacha, but at that time, um, he connected them with a Rav to remind people that coffee was not kidneyos. There was a confusion. There was a, a misunderstanding that kidney that coffee beans were beans, kidneyos, and they're not. They're, it's a berry. It's a fruit. We can get into the botany some other day. Um, but Joe knew that. He himself was actually wasn't from. He was an old, you know, Yekisha traditional Jew, um, but not Shomer Shabbos. But he knew that that was the case. And he contracted them with a, with a Rav. And the original ad that ran back in 1923 was interesting because it said, Mitzvah Aleinu Lasapir. Uh, it's a mitzvah for us to tell you. And if you look in today's Haggadah, it's in the back, a copy of that ad from the forward from 1923. Um, and that's the, the very quick history of Joseph Jacobs. Okay. And how did you get involved with this? Um, as I said, I got there in 1996, and the firm at that point wasn't actually um, Dick wasn't wasn't Shomer Shabbos, and um, other people in the in the firm were not. And it was at a time where the Haggadah hadn't been updated in any meaningful way since the 60s. So in 1997, 1998, we undertook to redo the Haggadah because they felt they had someone in the agency that was able to manage the project, and we did that. We updated the Haggadah in 1998 for the first time since the mid-60s. Um, at that point, though, we updated the typesetting. We updated the graphics. We updated the cover. Uh, we introduced, at that point, a color cover, so it looks much more modern. Um, and that became the standard bearer for the next uh, 10 or, or 12 years or so. Um, so it was a project that I got intimately involved with early on because... I was the one that had the the knowledge base and had the understanding of what the market needed and was able to uh, to handle it internally at the firm. 
Okay, so we'll talk more about the newest edition later on. But let's go. Let's start with the Haggadah. So you mentioned Maxwell House gets involved with Joseph Jacobs and the and the, and the agency, but that was in 1923, the first ad. The Haggadah doesn't start till 1932. So what goes on in the interim, and how does this idea for starting a Haggadah come to be? Well, as I had mentioned, there was that question that whether or not coffee beans were actually kidneys. And at that point, the way I was always told this story by Dick, it was that retailers and grocers on the Lower East Side would put away coffee beans when they set their store up for Pesach. Coffee then, for the most part, wasn't, Maxwell House was a canned product as we see it today, but a lot of loose beans were sold. This is gross, you know, think about being in a grocery store in the 1920s. So the big bins of loose coffee that we have like a scooper and you could buy it by the pound, the grocer would put it away because they were kidneys and they weren't for Pesach. So Maxwell House saw this and Joe Jacobs saw this and they said, well, what's the story? So as I said, Joe put them together with a Rav who gave him a Hashgacha, who told people they're not kidneys. In order to reinforce that, what do you do? This is marketing 101. You do something that really connects to the product. You give something away that is so intertwined, so connected with whatever you're trying to sell. And in that case, you're trying to sell Pesach. You give away a Haggadah. To be sure, they were not the first person to give away a Haggadah. They certainly were not the last ones to give away a Haggadah. Um, but this Haggadah, for a variety of reasons, which we could discuss, just stood the test of time. Some of it just being the wherewithal to continue doing it. So many of the Haggadot that were out there, the companies have disappeared. So if the companies disappeared, the Haggadah disappeared. Some of them, the companies not be there, but they were sold or their budgets dried up or all these various things happened that there wasn't this real inertia to, you know, to keep it going. So it didn't keep going and it dried up. On the flip side, Maxwell House, through all of its ownerships and transitions and brand teams and budgets and wars and uh, you, you know inflation and deflation, the brand always continued and found that this was a an integral part of their DNA. And I actually was at the brand just a few days ago um, doing something that we find so interesting because the brand is now owned by Kraft Heinz, the same folks that make Heinz ketchup and the same people that make uh, variety of non-kosher items that we you know don't pick up uh maybe uh, craft mac and cheese and velveta um the team celebrates this as such a part of their heritage that once a year for the last two years we last year i did it virtually the year before it was canceled i do a model seder with the team that runs the maxwell house coffee business and they're amazed i bring out matzah and shmura matzah i bring fresh ground horseradish for morrow and we go through what the seder is about and explain why this brand is so tied to the Jewish community and what the Seder itself means to a family and what it means to the greater world and what the holiday of, of Pesach is all about. So they feel that they really understand um, what this is. But getting back to your original question, it just did the test of time. Uh, they were willing to continue to do it and found it to be a useful tool for marketing and sales. And at this point, it is a useful connection uh, with the community. Right, so that's something I was going to say. Now it already turned into its own, almost its own brand. Like the Maxwell House Haggadah, we can mention this later. I know, pre, you know, when when uh, President Obama was president, he used it. I don't know if other presidents have it. He's famous that he used it by the White House Seder there. So right. I know it's 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 kind of become its own brand. That I guess at this point they just keep. I don't. You can talk to this. They keep it up just for that. But that that's interesting. So, but to a certain extent, that it, it certainly is that it is. It's become part. As I said, it is its own brand. But they're certainly not in the the business of Haggadahs. But oddly enough, this makes 
Max Hill House, the largest Judaica publisher in America. You know, we're talking about printing this year close to a half a million Haggadahs. There were years we were printing in the neighborhood of a million. So you, you pick a Judaica publisher in the United States. No one is printing altogether a half a million books a year, let alone a coffee company that gives them away for free. Well, that's another thing that I want to ask you. We can get to, I guess we can get to today. I want to pull back for the history for a second. Were they sold right away when they started never. making it? Or were they given out with the, when you buy the coffee? How did they it have never been sold. It's not a product to sell. It's a, it's a marketing tool. It's a giveaway. In theory, it is buy a can of coffee, a jar of coffee, and take a Haggadah. It's a free per, you know, free with purchase kind of deal. And it still does say that, by the way, if you go many stores that have them, there's a, they come in this nice shipper with a sign and it says free with purchase. We're certainly aware and sort of happy to say that we can appreciate people don't have a Seder for one. Khalilah, someone should be, God forbid, someone should be sitting there by themselves at a Seder table. It says it. And as I said, I just did my, my model Seder with them a few days ago. And I am very careful to, you know, pick and choose what I explain to this team. Uh, but I, without a doubt, every year go through Halach Ma'anya and explain, this is not a time to be alone. So they understand that they understand that people take more than one Haggadah. It's always been given away for free. They certainly would appreciate if people buy the coffee. Um, they, they are doing a very nice service for the Jewish community. And yes, it is designed uh, to sell coffee. It is designed to help get coffee into supermarkets because the supermarkets like to give them away. You go into a shop, right? If you're in the Northeast, you go into a Publix, you go into a Vons or a Winn-Dixie or a Jewel around the country or Kroger's, they're going to have it. They don't have to pay for those Haggadahs either. They get them from Maxwell House and they give them to the consumers. So there's there's an entire sort of uh, uh, daisy chain here of everybody getting their hands on it and everybody taking some portion of, um, I wouldn't say responsibility, but some uh, portion of the uh, uh, of the the benefit that the consumers are getting out of it. So you mentioned how it just became famous and grew into this brand, but was there anything unique about it or was it just the fact that it was this Hebrew-English Haggadah? And was, was, like, was that alone interesting? I know you mentioned, let me just, that was going to be a big question, but you mentioned other brands did it. And, you know, I'll throw out a name, Manischewitz. I know there have been others you can talk about. So, what, but I know you said they suck with it. So, okay, I understand that, but was, it, was there anything to their Haggadah or was it just, like you said, everyone else was doing it, just they stuck with it? I think it was much of it they stuck with it and also because they were a very large national brand. So most of the other brands that did them over time were a Manischewitz. They were a Bartons. They were, you know, I, there were other coffee companies even that didn't have the ability to get the Haggadahs to the vast corners of the United States. So as I said, we live in, you know, the Northeast. You go into a shop, right? But if you go to Jewel, in the Midwest, in Chicago, they're going to have them there. If you go to a Kroger's in Cleveland or Cincinnati, you're going to have them there. If you go to an HEB in Texas, there. if you're a brand that is large enough, and as Maxwell House grew and was purchased and it, by various companies and all sorts of merchants and acquisitions over the decades, it was something that allowed Jews across the country to get their hands on it. And where smaller brands didn't even have, even the ones that may have stuck with a little longer with it, didn't have that ability to continue to get that distribution model working. 
Now, do you happen to know whose idea was the Haggadah? I mean, you know, said you know, you said that Joseph Jacobs went with them, but was it his idea that he pitched them on? Let's do a Haggadah with. Yeah, the uh, my understanding has always been is that Joe went to them and said, "This is a way to to market Pesach. If you if you give something that is so intrinsic, and then think about it from marketing perspective, if you can give something to someone to a consumer that fulfills a need." You need a Haggadah at the Seder and gets your brand to physically be in the hands of every participant of this event. What better marketing can you be? Right. I think that's also what's, you know, it's just a simple, basic text of the Haggadah with the English translation. I know mm. now you have art school and other ones, but it's the fact that you just can use so that, it. That, that to me is the beauty, beauty, beauty of the Maxwell's Haggadah. To be sure. And this is firm chatter. So you have had, you have had authors and Mahabar Svarim, all types of people that can sit and have and probably sit at their seder stacked high with Haggadahs. You can have a Haggadah that delves into this Pirish and that Pirish and this angle of politics, if you want to go a little more liberal, and this angle. And you can have stuff that's, you know, on Kabbalah. It's all in there. Hundreds and hundreds of Haggadahs, thousands upon thousands of pages. But guess what? Then you have to find your audience. You're always going to have an audience for simple. You're always going to have an audience for the simplicity. And the fact that this doesn't have a commentary. Oh, I disagree with this comment. I don't like what he wrote. I don't like what she wrote. I don't like, it's not there. It's it, This is straight up. It's not even shot. It's just straight translation. It's the original, it's the original text of the Haggadah. And then it's an English translation. It tells you what to do. It is exactly to an extent in my mind, what the Seder was designed for. You start at the beginning. We all sing it. It, it does what the Seder is supposed to do. Kol Hamarba, great. That, that's fantastic. But for people either that don't want that, don't have the capacity for it, or guess what? At my Seder, I do sit with a Maxwell House. Yes, they are a phenomenal client and a great partner, but I also have other, I have other Svarim. I have people at the Seder that are giving other Divrei Torah, but you sometimes want to know it is simple enough. I've used lots of other Haggadahs, and I use one or two at the Seder, but you're turning the page every 10 seconds because there's a line or two of, of Haggadah, and the entire page is all is all Mepharshim. That's fantastic. But if you're actually trying to get through Magid, you don't want to turn the page every 10 seconds. There's a, a functionality to this that really works from true Shomri Shabbos, real to more secular families that sit around and have a traditional Seder, which we hope that everybody sits and does. And this book really serves that purpose from left to right. Very few things in in Judaism and Yiddishkeit really fit that bill. So I've obviously been with you by a bunch of... Uh... You have Darum over the years. I don't remember. I guess you do. You do use it. I, I, you know, speaking of that, I mean, I myself, I have plenty of Haggadahs to say. I try to use one. I, I don't use this, but I try to use something that has a small peerage. Exactly, because you don't want to turn a million pages while you're trying to find. You have to say the text of Haggadah, and it's like you're turning and turning. So I guess people people like that. Now let's talk about the translation, the original archaic translation. So who did that translation? So it's interesting. I never really knew this. Um, I'd say, though, back in the fall this year, a gentleman named Avram Rus from Israel, from Israel reached out to me that he was doing research because he had some understanding as to who he's writing a PhD and he's trying to figure out who wrote the original translation. And he called to see if I knew. And I had no idea because I was told it was this is the translation from 32. And that was that. He actually did a little bit of work 
And he actually came up with a name of a gentleman named Mr. Hausdorff, H-A-U-S-D-O-R-F-F, Hausdorff. So there seems to have been a family or two that says it was a great uncle or a grandparent, and they knew that that guy did the Haggadah. There was no real proof, but but this gentleman, Roos, he did an interesting thing, and I'm going to read you a text that he sent me. Um, he digitized several of the later works from Hausdorff and used an authorship authentication software to compare the known work from him with the t- translation of the Maxwell Sagoda. This was a long shot, but for technical reasons, he didn't go into it. It did not give a definitive outcome. But then he did further research and found that he is very comfortable to say, and again, I don't have records to go back this for, that Hausdorff worked for Joseph Jacobs back in the 20s, 30s. So if Hausdorff worked for us in that period of time, and there was a family that is claiming that their grandfather did this work, and this digitized software analysis says that it can't disprove that it's the same author, we're coming to a conclusion that we think this gentleman Hausdorff did the uh, did the work. That translation pretty much lasted from 1932 till 2011. And it, to be sure, it was it was a fine translation, but I, I always like, you know, I likened it to iamic pentameter or something. It was it was very old and archaic. It was if you picked up uh, I hate to say it, maybe an old Birnbaum sitter kind of thing, or or probably a little bit worse. Um so that worked. And again, I speak to people about this Haggadah almost year-round, oddly enough, and people of all stripes and colors. And there's always those families that say, oh, they love the archaic because, you know, there are families that have a, a minig or a custom that they have different people read out loud different parts. And of course, certain families do it in English. Either that's they do the whole thing in English or they split it up. And they love to make fun of it. They love to have it to kibitz around about the crazy translation. But um, it was always a, sort of the butt of a joke instead of it actually being something a little bit more serious. Um, so that's what we understand. That this gentleman, Hausdorff, seemed to have done that translation in 1932, and or in the early 30s, it was used in the original 32 edition. And that was a standard bear for what we used really up until uh, 2011. Um, so do you have some examples of this? I mean, I, people may be familiar, or maybe if they're not familiar, just like, what, what do you mean by archaic? What are some examples of old? Let's open it up. I'm actually, you can't see me, but I'm holding the 1933 Haggadah. So this is original before they might have done, you know, let's even, hold on a second. Just let me open some pages here. I'll even go from the, the simplicity, simplicity, simplicity of, of, of any of the brachos, any of the blessings here. Right? So what is it? Blessed art thou, O eternal. So we do have in some places here, O eternal, but blessed are you instead of art thou. You know, it, it, it it's very, there are aspects of it that, you know, we were able to get rid of. We do have O Eternal in a couple of places because there are places we didn't take it and make it into a modern translation. But let's take a look here. What else? Okay, I'm looking here at the beginning. I opened it up to, uh, to Havdalah just because it's here. Thou di- didst, D-I-D-S-T, also discriminate between the sanctity of the Sabbath day and the sacredness of the festival and didst consecrate the seventh day in preference for the six working days 
thou didst also separate thy people Israel and didst sanctify them with thy holiness. Wow. And this is the translation. And this is until 2011. This is the translation. This was there in 2011. And now we have, you have also distinguished between the sanctity of the Sabbath day and the sacredness of the festival. And you have consecrated the seventh day in preference to the six working days. You have also distinguished your people. Again, we left it in a more respected liturgy kind of sound, I would say. It didn't, we didn't want this to come off like, as I said, uh, you know, a modern novel. But at the very same time, we wanted a balance. And as I said, we, we updated translation. We didn't retranslate from scratch. So we, we really did that in a way that makes it um, more palatable, both for, for people that are accustomed to using English and Hebrew translations that might daven every day, et cetera, or to families that are going to gather around just for Pesach. Yeah, just just quickly before we go, I, you know, I just want to pull you back to that old translation. What about like Manashtan or Baruch Hamakim? You know, Arab Abanim. What what do they translate over there? And then we'll 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 talk about the new translation. You can contrast okay. So let's that. go to Manashtana for a second. I'm just give me a minute. Uh, gonna go. Uh, so here we go. So we have. Very simple. Manishtana, we all know this. It's used in every headline and every Pesach you've ever seen. Why is this night different? You see, back in 1932, wherefore is this night distinguished from all other nights? Now, you think about it. You know, Chaim and Sarah are going to get up on the chair and start singing Manishtana in English. And they're going to start saying, wherefore is this night distinguished from all other nights? It's just not going to, it wasn't working. So, the current version is why is this night different from all the nights? Yeah, we could sit here in Darshan. Is that exactly what it means? But then again, then we're getting into whether or not we need Perish on Haggadah. But the straight up translation that everybody is accustomed to and children should be comfortable being able to say in English or in Hebrew is why is this night different? Right. Like I have the newer translation in front of me. Like you said, you mentioned earlier, like uh, I see here, you know, Bracha is blessed are you, our God, monarch of the universe. Okay. And creator of the fruit of the vine. Okay. Maybe that seems a bit interesting. Even the new one, but. Well, Bore, creator, pre Hagofen, yep. creator. Because you say it, it, we translated it in a way that was literal, but more comfortable. And you said something there. I don't know if you want to get in. Where do you want to get into on the on the modern translation? Go ahead. You can talk about the, so let's talk about the modern translation now that we talked already about the archaic and there's there's you know there's much more to talk about there. But but before we get to the modern, I want to say so the, this old translation that's in the old one. Someone would have to buy on eBay or something an old Haggadah. You can't. If you want to get the old Haggadahs, people do call us. People, I need one from 1987 to match up my set. Believe me, that that happens more often than you think. Um, the only place to get old Haggadahs today is primarily to go to eBay. And in fact, a good part of my collection that I have, and I have them all, um, or I, I don't have every year. I have from every edition, every time there was a cover change, things like that. Um, I have them and I bought them on eBay. And that's really your best bet. Okay. Um, that, that's the uh, one of the places to get them. So in 2011, when we redid the, the Haggadah for what the current version is, with a, a minor changes this year, is that what we ended up doing is we updated, as I said, the translation. We also changed the layout. In his, historically, English and Hebrew were in opposing columns on the same page. Um, we turned it to the more modern use, where it's on opposing pages. So we updated it, as I said, and as we just went through, 
but one of the other things we did, and this, this gets into interesting conversations, of course, from a Hashkafic perspective, but we gender neutralized the language in English. And it got everybody's radar. Everybody's antennas were up and I've got, I got phone calls because, but then I said to everybody that I spoke to, I said, first of all, read it, take a read and come back to me and tell me if you have trouble with it from a Hashkafic and a Halachic perspective that we retranslated and went gender neutral. No one called back because we didn't, we weren't going to go he, she, and we translated it, even if it might not have been literal, in a way that just took away the concerns. Because obviously, you know, Hebrew is a gender specific language. And that's just the way the language is. French is like that. Spanish is like that. Others are like that. So when you translate something, certainly when it was translated originally in the 20s and 30s um, or earlier, it was going to be translated literally. And as we translated, whenever something is in a you know, plural or in an unknown format, the, the way to write it in Hebrew is in the male form. Again, other languages just the same. So the translation always went male. If you rewrite the English to avoid that problem, you rewrite the English to avoid that problem. Uh, the one biggest question, and, and Nachi, you, you mentioned it when you were going through the Boyer and there, was a very big challenge. And we actually believe we hit it head on. And not only did we hit it head on, and we really solved the problem, I truthfully believe that we actually did a, a more accurate job. What do you do for a word that comes across in the Haggadah many times? Baruch Hashem, Elokeinu, Melech Ha'olam. Melech is definitive, a king versus a queen. And again, what do you do there? We translated it with monarch. It's an accurate, correct, appropriate translation. And in my mind, the way I understood it, and I spoke to some people when we were doing this work, it actually does a better job than writing king. Because the Rambam actually says that we're not supposed to ascribe gender to our Kaddish Baruch God doesn't have a gender. But why do we write God in Melech? Why do we write? Why do we talk about God with Etzbal or Kim? Because in order for for humans to understand what what God and Hakadosh Baruch was all about, we need to ascribe some understanding of something that we can understand. Melech, of course, is the the big word you could think of, especially when things were written, when kings had that type of power, you know, over people's lives uh, in you know hundreds and thousands of years ago. The word Melech was Melech, but the truth is this. HaKadosh Baruch Hu isn't the Melech. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, is beyond the Melech, beyond the, uh, a monarch. But it was a more appropriate way of, of actually going after the Rambam that says you shouldn't actually choose gender. So as I said, when people would call me after, you know, we still, every couple of years, someone calls when they read an article about it online. And I give them this exact same conversation. I said, you read the translation and come back and tell me if there was something inappropriate from that perspective, if it's not even more accurate. And as I said, I've never received another call from any of those people. Um, because we really took we took it to heart to make sure that it was it was accurate, and we also wanted to make sure that it was it was something that would really connect with everybody that picked it up. And we really do believe that this Haggadah has a purpose from fully Shomer Shabbos, you know, families that sit and use it at their seder to very secular families that this is their you know couple time a year ritual gathering and they get together for Pesach and that's phenomenal. We, as I said before, we hope that many more people do. We wanted them to really be able to feel that they could uh, accept this and use this Haggadah the same. So was this gender neutral, like you said, monarch, so to speak, was that something that was a Maxwell House directive or that was something that you decided on your own? When we did the work, they didn't give us many directives. We, we had told them and would discuss with them, we wanted to update the look and the feel. 
And we felt it was also time. And we presented to them that we were going to update the translation. And I also came and said, I think we should go this route because there are always murmurings. You know, I've, I've spoken to many people over the years about this Haggadah from every corner. People love, everybody loves it. Let's just start there. I don't get, I, I've never got complaints. People have called me up and wanted me to add, you know, hey, you should do this. It's a great piece to care of. You should add Midrashim. You should add explanation. I'm like, but that's not the purpose of this. That will actually take this and make people not want to connect with it. But there were people that were looking to make sure, as I said, that it was more in tune and acceptable to the very broad, broad spectrum of Judaism in America. So thinking about it from that perspective, I said, if we redo this, we should do it in a way that every corner is going to be happy and every corner can celebrate it. And that was, it was something that we went to them and said, these are, this is our proposal. This is our our presentation. And these are the things we want to update. And they, of course, you know, looked at it and said, oh, that's a great idea. So from the original in 32 until the new one in 2011, you said the translation was the same. So what, but you did mention there were different editions published. So what did that entail in those different editions? Just different covers? Were there illustrations inside? What was changed? Their illustrations have, have changed different sizes, different covers. So if you look, if anybody gets their hand on some or their photos online, there were these wood etchings. I'm holding this one now. Again, you can't see me on a podcast, but it's uh, 1933. There were these wood etchings that are of the Arbabanim, of the four sons. There are all these different types of um, illustrations. There's one here of, of Moshe hitting, you know, killing um, an Egyptian from the story. Then, you know, it shows a picture of Moshe in the basket, you know, coming out of, of, of the Nar. All those different things. Over the years, though, those different illustrations did get changed and trying to make them, in some sense, more modern, because those are old. They look they look old. They were, as I said, wood etchings and sketches. And the version I'm holding now from the late 50s, early 60s, has art that looks like the early 50s, early 60s. If you think about, you know, think about the art on an original um, Monopoly board. With the hand says, do not pass, go, you know, go straight to jail, do not pass, go. That's actually here pointing to, you know, Moro, Moro Zel, you know, why do we eat Moro? And that's the type of illustration they did. When And they would update those throughout the, the decades. Then the covers would change every few years, just in a sense to keep it a little bit fresh. From the 60, from about 65, all the way until, um, all the way until I said uh, 1998, the covers were all, were blue and white in different variations. There weren't any color on them. And we updated at that point to make it much more modern and uh, more today. In fact, the illustrations in that version was photography. So we, you know, you have. A, I'm looking at it now. You have a plate here with matzah. You have korech. Uh, so we had a, a you know half a sheet of machine matzah with charoses uh, and mar on it. And for rochza, there's a picture of a nice uh, of a nice pitcher with a, with a bowl for people to wash. So. There are, uh, we tried to make it contemporary so that people didn't feel that the brand um, and the Haggadah, as we said, we want people to feel connected to this. We want it to be part of their their family's heritage in Misora. And I'm telling you, you speak to people of most any stripe, any part of Yiddishkeit, and it's even younger people. I met somebody as, um, last week who works on the Maxwell's brand. Um, he is not ritually observant. And when he told his mother, I kid you not, this guy's in his 20s. He works at Kraft Heinz. I'm sure he went to a very good college and has a graduate degree. And he told his mother that he was moving on to the Maxwell House team. 
she was like all excited because, and he told me, he took a picture the other day. Oh, my mom has the 1940 Haggadah in the house. Like that's what people connect to when they hear their son, their shepherd, Yiddish and from their kid, because he works, he works for a big company, has a great job. He works on Maxwell House and they give us the Haggadah. And that's this woman's excitement for her son's job. I'm sure she's proud of other things. He's a nice guy, but um, but that's really where the connection is. And we want it always, and that's the, the mindset we have with this, is whatever we do, we want it to make sure that it's the broadest, broadest use. And the other thing I tell people is interesting. People say, oh, it doesn't have enough Mepharshim. I use X, Y, and Z. Great. They're also phenomenal benches for the rest of Pesach because you open it up. I'll tell you, this is a secret, guys. If you open the Maximus Agoda to the center and turn one page back, you're at benching. It's the page right before the centerfold. It's easy to find. So you go have a bunch of Haggadahs in your house. And when you're benching on Cholamoid or the rest of Yontif, you have an opportunity to have a, a bencher. And we're, we're happy to help for that too. Right, because it's like staples. So it opens right right to the middle. One question about the picture illustration, just because a good friend of mine, Yosef Hurst, asked me this. He wants to know if the guy on the front cover has six fingers. It looks like a six-fingered okay, guy. That is the, the, that is the cover, not the current cover. And in fact, this year, we updated the cover. This year is the 90th anniversary, actually, of Haggadah. So the current cover, if one goes out to a supermarket, you will see it's a brand new edition. But the cover he's talking about is the one that, that ran from 1998 till 2010. The photo he's talking about is on the back. And I can tell you, I was at that photo shoot. That gentleman does not have six fingers on his hand. I did hear about this conversation from a few people a number of years ago, and I went to go look. The photo, for whatever reason, looks very interesting. We can't figure out how it happened, but he does not have six fingers. And it does look that way. His right hand that's holding the Haggadah there looks like this is something, but it 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 isn't. Okay, so that, that was just wanted to, to clarify. Now, you, you need to make sure that he, you know, that's the thing. Okay, something else about the translation, I don't know if we mentioned. So now the, there's also transliteration as well, right? Um, yes, there's a transliteration also. So we've always maintained that, but it's not for the entire Haggadah. It is actually for only, I would dare say, specific parts. Um, so all of the brachas. So Kiddush is actually transliterated. Every bracha is transliterated. Holach ma'anya, manishtana. Um, we don't transliterate all of Magid, and we did, we don't transliterate um, we don't transliterate um, Dayenu, but we actually um, no, and we don't. Uh, it's basically just specifically the brachos and a couple of, as I said, more traditional things at the very beginning. So Manishtana is there, Holach Ma'anya, and it's been something that's been carried forward for quite some time. It allow, and I will tell you, it, it, people actually do like seeing that there. So I'm looking here. It is. It's interesting. It's something that was in the 1960s to 90s version, but it's it wasn't something that was there before. I think it was added because people felt that there were people, unfortunately, that were losing their ability to read Hebrew. Um, as I said, the model seder that I did just the other day uh, with the Maxwell House team. There's a young woman on the team that we worked with this year. And she has a bit of a background. So I had her read the Manishtana. I always love putting them on the spot there. Uh, and she said that she would do it in Hebrew using the transliteration. But that transliteration for someone that has some background in Hebrew helps them tremendously. I've done it with people of in different places, and they break their teeth if they don't really have any fluidity in, in Ivrit. 
she had some background. So when she did it in Hebrew, it sounded like like you and me reading Manashtana. Um, and there are families that like that. They like to know that, you know, somebody could do that. Was there ever any discussion of doing translating into another language? No, it's an American project. It's um, the product is for the United States, and uh, the language that is most spoken here is, uh, is 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 English, of course. So it's always been it's for that market. Gotcha. Okay. So now, now you mentioned before, like you published half a million this year. I mean, generally, what are the numbers? How many are published? Is that like the standard number, like every year? Um, the last few years we've been publishing in this amount. There were a couple of years where it dipped down a bit. But as I said, we've the high water mark we've had is about a, a, about a million, uh, and it depends the demand, uh, depends on budget, depends on on a variety of uh, of things. The client comes in, Maxwell House decides every year what what we're able to do. It depends on the demand from the retailers, the supermarkets, the shop rights, the jewels, the Winn Dixies, the uh, um, the the Vons, the Ralphs, all of that. What they think they're going to need, and how well they're going to distribute. Um, it is it, it's such an interesting piece to take a look. What type of excitement the stores get, and, and really, we find this out. I see emails that people that manage the Passover sections in these stores, it is on their list to ensure that these things are in that store. They don't want consumers and shoppers walking in trying to pick up their Pesach food and not being able to find a Haggadah. So you mentioned the ninetieth, uh, the ninetieth anniversary is this year. Is there something? Are they doing something? Is there something special about it to change the cover or anything? As I mentioned, we we did update the cover. Uh, it's an entirely new, different cover for this year. Um, it doesn't look anything like it did in the past. We, I wouldn't say it's more modern. It's a, we shot a, a Seder plate from above. It matches a little bit of the colors of the brand. Um, just a different take. And on the back of this year's cover, it actually has a bit of history. It celebrates. It says that it's uh, the 90th anniversary, and it shows other covers uh, from the past. And it it tells people uh, a little bit about the history of the Haggadah, which we already have. If you, again, if you read the inside back, the story is there. If you go to, you know, what is this, page uh, 58. If you're holding one, it, it gives a bit, a little bit of the story. Okay, so uh, something else, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I think now you did a collaboration with uh, Amazon on the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. They did Midges Haggadah. Is that, is interesting, like a pop culture crossover? Is that, a, is that something that they were going to do more of? Why did they do that? Um. I can't say we wouldn't do more of it. It's something we, we would love to do. It it really made sense. Again, as we said, the, the Haggadah has permeated into so many people's consciousness about Pesach that if you think about it, and if you know anything about The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, um, the show from Amazon Prime, she's that quint, the character is a quintessential, you know, Jewish woman, traditional on the Upper West Side of New York. And if she were a real person, her Passover Seder would certainly have entailed using a Maxwell's like other. There's no doubt. So it made perfect logical sense, number one, to bring the to bring the Haggadah to, to that consumer. And then at the same time, let's not forget, the idea here is to sell coffee and to brand Maxwell House to the Jewish consumer. So when that Haggadah was done, it wasn't only done to get some excitement, which it certainly did, but it was also to move product. So it was it only available if you bought the coffee on Amazon, different than the Haggadahs available at supermarkets. So it was a way to drive consumers to start understanding that they could buy Maxwell's coffee on Amazon Prime. And it worked. They got record numbers of new people buying coffee through Amazon that had never done it before because they wanted the Haggadah. 
So we, as much as we, we could talk about this and talk about it from a Svarim perspective and a Jewish community perspective, um, and we want to, it, let's understand its original purpose. This, the original purpose is and maintains to help build the brand. So that was where it tied in with Amazon. It took a very traditional marketing tool and a branding device and was able to make a very, very phenomenal twist to modern day e-commerce. Okay. One other thing, just because a friend of mine just wants to be another illustration question. He wants to know why, why the Mitzrayim can't wear shirts. He's been tra- the most traumatizing part of the Seder. It seems like the Mitzrayim don't have shirts in the Maxwell Haggadah. Like, but so that's obviously an older version because we don't have any shirtless people in the current Haggadahs. I don't know. Your friend needs to get some new Haggadahs. Let's just tell him that. I think by, by the Marcus, I see they don't have in here. I'm opening one. By the Marcus, they, they don't have the Mitzrayim. Was that something like that? Where, which, which edition are you holding there? I don't even know. Well, the edition that I'm holding, one of the editions that I'm holding by the Marcus, where um, you go to, yeah, and you go to Adams for there when you count to all the Marcus, right? Okay, so the current the current version only, the current version only has two frogs. So, oh, okay. and, the, and the frogs, to be sure, don't have shirts, but that's in deference to Kermit. Because if you notice, Kermit also, you know, but uh, they're, they're, I would imagine, and, and again, the two versions that I personally was involved with, don't have shirtless people in them. But think about it. If you were working every day out in that desert heat, really, you want to wear a shirt? It's going to get sweaty. I don't know. Maybe that's the, I guess, the Egyptology of the day someone decided that that was what Egyptians ancient. Egypt- I would imagine that is what the Egyptians wore when out. In, I, I, you know, I see what he's talking about. I'm looking at one of the older versions here. And I don't think it's the Egyptians. I think it's actually, uh, it's a little bit of uh, the Israelim too, because it looks like the people that are working. I guess someone the current <laughs> versions do not have anybody shirtless. <laughs> this is a creative team decision. Someone just didn't. Uh, someone just left off the shirts. Okay, yeah. Just was just trying to ask a question. Okay, so now the the, the question is for people listening to this. People, I'm sure, have them and don't have them. But today, especially, I'm sure a lot of people listening to the podcast shop in gourmet glot and bingo and evergreen. Not to give marketing. Not to give free shout outs to groceries or whatever Jewish grocery stores. And they can't get the Maxwell House Agada. So how can one get them? Is there another the way? Maxwell House Agada is readily available primarily in mass marketed supermarkets. So you can get them, if, as, I, as I've been mentioning before, in a ShopRite, in a, a Winn-Dixie, in a Kroger's. Most of the, for reasons of distribution, there's no reason for or against. And I guess in theory, some of these stores next year or in future years, if they went to the person that buy that they get their craft products from, they could uh, request them. They typically don't get the Haggadahs. Uh, but if you go into a typical supermarket in the Pesach aisle, I know that they're there. I've seen them already myself. Um, they can pick them up. If one needs Haggadahs and can't find them locally, um, they can be obtained still for free, but to cover the, you know, plus shipping and handling costs um, at MaxwellHouseHaggadah.com. And you put in your information and you put in your credit card and they get shipped out so that people have them if they can't find them where they live locally. Right. And as you mentioned, people wanted older editions, or eBay, eBay is your friend. Yeah, I know. I'm not sure if give the Israel Mizrahi a shout out. You know, Judeakayuse.com, my good friend Israel Mizrahi, his used farm store. I think he, you know, he's had some old ones there, I'm sure. They, they, you said, go to eBay, basically. Yeah, I, if if a, if an old farm dealer um, has them, then that's obviously phenomenal. But I've, I've found, you know, more typically that that's where they are. People are cleaning out their houses and find them uh, and they, you know. It's what it's what worked for me. You should be careful though, because people don't jump on the first one. If you're looking for one, make sure it's within the right price range. Because I've occasionally seen people try to sell 
like a 1940. Oh, rare, rare, rare. And it's selling for like $150 and they really worth like 25 bucks. So just uh, keep your eye out and try not to jump at the first one and say, oh, I want that old one. Uh, but it is, uh, I buy some of this old stuff from other projects that we've worked on at the agency also on eBay. And I find it uh, usually works out very well. Okay. So I'll put a link in the show's notes, but you said people can go to get it. And um, yeah, thank you very much for joining me to, to talk about this. I'm going to add one thing, which I think is important that really adds to what this Haggadah is about. So we spoke about the translation and we spoke about um, what people and how people use it around their Seder table and why it's so simple. But I, I really, I like to tell this to people when I, I have these conversations that the Haggadah itself, as I said, is very within reach to nearly anybody in the Jewish spectrum. But I truly have a belief that without this Haggadah particularly, many, many, many homes in America would have no liturgy left at their Seder meal. There'd be no religiosity left there because it makes it so simple to pick up a Haggadah. You go buy matzah at the supermarket, you get your wine at the supermarket, you get your chicken, your beef, whatever you need for your Seder is there and you could pick it up. Remember that so many people in this country don't either have easy access or even know what a Judaica store is, or maybe they'll go to their temple shop and they'll buy something there, but then they got to call their rabbi and find out what they should do. This makes somebody comfortable. And if they didn't have access to these free Haggadahs, the table would end up being devoid of any really, I would dare say, religious significance in any meaningful way. Where would they get the text for the for Manishtana. Where would they know how to set up a Seder plate? We're in 2022, so you could Google these things, but a lot of this would have been lost, you know, two decades ago when that wasn't really a thing because they didn't have that. So I really connect the continuity of Pesach in America to this Haggadah, not necessarily vice versa, because it allowed families to know that they were being traditional without feeling like they were, they didn't know what to do. The instruction manual is available to them in the easiest format, as we said before, without Pirushim, without commentaries. It's straightforward and it's so easy to get. They didn't have to feel, oh, I got to call the rabbi again. I got to go. I got to go to the temple store. I got to go find the Judaic store. I got to go to the I got to go to the Jewish neighborhood. You don't. You just have to go where you pick up milk. And if you buy milk and a box of matzah and you get it and a can of coffee and a free Haggadah, you can have the Seder like your grandfather did and your grandmother did. And that is, I'm telling you, a comfort that people shouldn't really walk away from so quickly because I truly believe that otherwise it would be a Thanksgiving table for so many families if they didn't know what to do and what to say. Yeah, and and, and even even the front people, I mean, I put on my WhatsApp status and I'm doing this, anyone have any questions? And people getting responses, all my friends, people, oh, everyone, everyone seems to use it. So this is, like you said, even used in the regular community. It's not just something used by, you know, not religious people or more traditional or whatever. It's used by everyone. It, it, it goes across the bounds, I'm telling you. And it really, and that's the beauty of it. It really is, think about how many other sfarim that people could have out there that really can get used so broadly across the spectrum and means something special in some ways to each of those segments. As I said, for maybe people that are, are could be really learned and lumdish and really sit all night with and going through the Haggadah really indoctrinating, this helps them keep, as you said before, sometimes it's just great because you just want to be able to, I got to get through the next couple of paragraphs before we get to the next, you know, it's easy. But for the people that don't have that background, 
they want to know that they're doing it right and they don't want to be embarrassed that they have to go find the information. And this, this does that for them in such a meaningful way. And then also everybody's on the same page at the table. Everybody has it. Why don't you just digitize it? We've gotten that call. Digitize it. Everybody could sit there. And I, I said to someone, I said, do you really want to take an opportunity to have your family? Let's take away the halachic issues of it being maybe Pesach and, you know, many people wouldn't use a, a device. Ignore that for a moment. You have a chance to have your family around a table celebrating a, a holiday, a ritual, maybe just dinner. You're going to, you're going to specifically, Dafka, force them to pick up their digital device. Let's put the digital device away and pick up a paper book that everybody has the same and can be on the same page and can enjoy the moment. Right. Absolutely. So, they, they, you know, they added, definitely added a good point that it's, it's definitely a very important uh, um, thing. So, all right. Now, you know, thank you for, for uh, discussing its history and uh, how it is now. And I'll add a link that if anyone wants to only does not only shops in uh, Jewish groceries, does not shop in the, like I said, a mass market grocery store. They can uh, get a copy. And thank you again, once again, for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Nachi. Chag to everyone.